Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you very much again for joining us in our series on genetics. This is episode three out of four. And until now, we've been speaking about genetics in general. We've spoken about the more halachic aspect in relation to Judaism. There's a lot more to modern genetics than just the halachic aspect. Obviously, there's the legal, there's genetics that's used the whole time in popular culture. How does Judaism look at the legal and other variations of the way genetics are used today. I know you're a doctor, but possibly if you put your lawyer hat on, possibly police officer hat on, and give us a bit more of a background and the relevance for today. Yes, thank you very much for this invitation. We spoke in the past about genetics in terms of screening before getting married. We spoke about eliminating genetic problems in families who have them. So as you request, let's turn our attention to the criminal area. Among others, let's call this JLACSI, right? Crime Scene <laughs> Investigation. How does Judaism approach those questions? And perhaps we broaden it maybe in our next session to identifying not only dead bodies and so forth, but also Jews. We have now discovered a Jewish gene. Very interesting. We have a Kohanic gene. So this is a very broad field. Let's begin with the question of whether it's acceptable in Judaism to identify people by means of their genes. This obviously has tremendous legal and forensic consequences, talking about indeed crime scene investigation, but it could also be a body for purposes of burial. For example, a Jew might be buried somewhere and then the question might arise of identifying the remains in order to move a person to be buried with his family members. As you know, Rabbi Reisner, we don't move a body for almost anything, very, very much against disturbing a body or bones. In fact, probably the only two reasons I can think of maybe three reasons that we might ever do that. One would be, of course, a legal requirement where there'd be a murder investigation or something like that. Interestingly, our rabbinic authorities say that to exhume a body and tamper with a body in a murder case, there may be two halachic reasons for that. One is that if a murderer may be brought to justice, may represent a life-saving consequence, if that person may be dangerous. And secondly, even if the burden wouldn't be dangerous, but avenging the death of a murdered individual, according to many halachic opinions, is called kovodames. In other words, it's considered to be the dignity of the dead that his murderer is brought to justice. And although messing with a body is not the honor of the dead, it's on the contrary a dishonor to the dead to deface or to disturb remains, but to do so in order to bring a murderer to justice would counterbalance that. So that might be a reason. A second reason we might want to interfere, let's say, with a, with a body or exhume a body would be to bury the person in Israel which ordinarily should not be done, let me point out, unless there's particular good reason. But if there is particular good reason, then of course that would be acceptable. And thirdly, would be for uh, purposes of moving the burial site to what's called kivrei avos, kivrei avot, which means to be buried together with your family members is a very important, very important thing in Jewish law. And therefore, sometimes in wartime or hurried circumstances or risks or dangers, a body might be buried not with family. Why is it so important? Well, this is deep Kabbalistic significance of resting 
in a place, first of all, burial itself, very important, not only halakhically, but kabbalistically. That's why we don't cremate people and and so forth. Um, so that's important. And where you lie, even as a dead body, is very important. Uh, just to answer your question very, very superficially and briefly, when a dead body is buried, attendant upon the body is a little bit of soul. We understand that there's never a complete separation of body and soul. Body and soul were meant to be intensely linked eternally, because death was brought to the world by human misbehavior, there now needs to be a temporary separation. And this you find in the writings of the great Balaleshem, one of our great authorities of 100 years ago. He writes that there's never complete separation in the world, which means that body and soul, although they're largely separated during what we call death, are not completely separated. So it's not purely for resurrection. Well, n- not purely, but since you raised that point, let me say this, that in a dead body, in a grave, is a little bit a remnant of soul. Technically speaking, it's called the Havla de Garmi, which means the sort of ethereal, ephemeral wisps of soul that remain, or in technical Kabbalistic terms, it's the nefesh of the nefesh of the nefesh of the nefesh. Some very tenuous uh, amount of soul is left. And indeed, that is what enables the resurrection. It's because that amount of soul, so to speak, still invests the body that the rest can reconnect in the... But it also means that there is some aspect of a person, and that's in fact why we visit graves it's not sentimental. It's important for our listeners to know there's nothing emotional or sentimental about anything in Judaism. It's always essence and reality. And if you speak to a person who's dead and you do that when you visit the grave, or you dove and you pray at a graveside, or visit the grave, it is doing something for the person who's buried there. It's not just emotional, sentimental, sort of evocative action. It is very much a, um, I think I mentioned to you, Previously, that when I was in Prague with Ramosha Shapira, I actually saw him lie down on the grave of the Maharal, sort of climb up, clamber up onto the the tzion, which is a few, you know, three or four feet high, and he actually lay down. That's called Mishnatech al Kivrei And afterwards, we asked him, this great rabbi, you know, what's so special about the graves of Sadikim? And he, speaking in English, which was unusual for him, he said, "It is triasamesim under construction. It's yeah. the resurrection of the dead in the phase of reconstruction." So. That is a little bit about grace. But let's return to the subject of genetics. Of course, each sidetrack could take us into a whole new world. (laughs) But those are the reasons we might, in fact, wish to tamper with or take pieces of a body or or move a body. Now, the question is, for these purposes, reburial, insurance purposes, inheritance purposes, mourning laws, you can imagine there are endless consequences attendant upon knowing who a person is. Not only in death, we might find a sample of biological material at a crime scene. The person is not dead, but we would want to know, you know, could we incriminate an individual? So so this is an almost endless field. And today, with modern genetics, we have very, very, very sharp tools. Just to give you some idea, uh, DNA identification today from a crime scene or some adequate sample of biological material or excretions or secretions found at a crime scene we can identify an individual, link them to that specimen with a specificity of around 1 in 10 million. 1 in 10 million. Now, that is a very, very high order of certainty. And the question is, halakhically, are we allowed to do that? Let me point out, first of all, that 1 in 10 million is not absolute. There have been American courtroom dramas in which the jury was told that the chance that the accused is not the person who is made out to be would be less than one in 10 million that still means there are 30 40 americans who could have fit the bill you're talking about 300 400 million people so one in 10 million is by no means an absolute measure but it's just incredibly incredibly good now the question is is that good enough jewishly so let me give you the background on this 
We have in Jewish law a thing called simonim. Simonim means features that identify. Now, what are the classic simonim? Well, the 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 concept of of an identifying um, identifying appearance. Before we get to the technicalities of simonim, the gold standard would be witnesses seeing the face. So let's say a person was found dead, and we need to know who the person is. One classic application of that, of course, would be let's say it was a married man. And if we can positively identify the body, then we know that his wife is a widow. If she's indeed a widow, she may remarry. If, however, we're not certain who the body is, then the, wa- the woman might be a widow or she might be a married woman whose husband has disappeared. After all, if the body's not found, who knows? Who can say for sure that the man died? You know, maybe he's living in the Bahamas with a new flame, hmm. you know, and uh, doesn't want her to know where he is. So in that case, she'd be a married woman. And of course, a married woman cannot marry again at that stage. So it's very, very important for marriage law, among many others, to know whether the person, in fact, is who we think he might be. Now, the gold standard, halakhically, would be two witnesses seeing the face, including the central portion of the face, including the nose. If they can positively identify the person in such a fashion, yes, indeed, he's declared dead, and we can move on. But let me tell you an amazing story. There's a very senior rabbi in London, a senior personality. A few years ago, he was in the shower, 20 minutes before Shabbat, when his wife said to him, listen, you've got to come out of the shower. It's an important phone call. Wraps himself in a towel, comes out of the shower, finds himself speaking to the British ambassador in Nigeria. And not your everyday Friday phone call? No, exactly. And the ambassador says, Rabbi, I'm the British ambassador serving here in Nigeria. It's my unpleasant duty to inform you that we had a Jewish-British businessman who came on business to Nigeria and unfortunately went swimming in the ocean and he drowned. I now have his body, and it's my duty as the representative of the British government to send him home for burial in England. The problem is, and the reason I'm calling you, is according to Nigerian law, I'm not allowed to ship a body without embalming the body. And I want to know if, according to your religion, I'm permitted to embalm the body. I wouldn't do anything to offend your religion. So the rabbi questioned him about the techniques of embalming and so forth, and he came to the conclusion it would be okay. He said to the ambassador, go ahead, do that, and send him home. But then he added the following fascinating request. He said, but before you do that, I want you to go down to the mortuary, Mr. Ambassador. I want you to look at the dead man's face. I want you to take a photograph of the dead man's face. I then want you to positively identify the photograph as indeed the face of that man. I then want you to put an ambassadorial stamp on the photograph and sign it with your signature and stitch it to the dead man's chest. In other words, he said, I was concerned that if the body underwent some decomposition had been in the water for some time, came back to England and we were no longer able to identify it positively, that would be very, very problematic. But if it comes at least with an ambassadorial guarantee that this face belongs to this individual, and indeed the body arrived in England a few days later with a photograph and an ambassadorial <laughs> validation, right, stamped on the wow. photo. Okay, so that's, a, that's very unusual, of course. But So that would be the face. However, what if you don't find a face? What if you only find a body, it's decomposed, you can't identify the face? Here we can resort to something called simonim. A simon means a sign. A classic application of that would be, let's say I find a lost object, I find a wristwatch, and you claim you lost a wristwatch. The Jewish procedure is, I don't show it to you. I tell you, please identify the object. And you say, well, it was green and blue and it had a scratch like this, and, a, and you give me what's called simonim. If you can give me sufficiently unique identifying features, I then am obliged to return the object to you. So that's called simonim. Now, the question is, how unique do the simonim have to be? So we have three categories. One is called a siman muvhak, which means an exceptionally unique feature. 
The second is called Simon Benoni, which is something that's unique, but not that unique. And then we have the run-of-the-mill Simonim, you know, the odd scratch or mark, which is not absolutely unique. Now, of course, for things like remarriage and so forth, we'd need Simon Muva. We'd be the best level of Simon. Now, the question is, and if we could find a body with a Simon, okay, for example, let's say in a very unusual birthmark or maybe, uh, you know, the, the legal standard today in most forensic situations in the non-Jewish world is dental records. And the reason is that a good dentist will take accurate records of the pattern of teeth. That can be extremely specific. And uh, teeth, of course, survive fires and acid attacks and other things. So that could be a very, very useful forensic remains. And that is what is done. Or perhaps I could think of maybe a very unusual tattoo. You know, even though, of course, a Jew should not be tattooed. But if you had a very unique and unusual tattoo, and of course, the, the thing about tattoos is that they're permanent. You know, you cannot erase them. I never forget the experience as a young doctor. I had a young fellow came into my examining room to be examined, and he jumped up on the examining couch and took off his shirt. He had a tattoo on his arm. It said Sue, crossed out, Beverly, crossed out, Har- Harriet, crossed out, you know. I think Harriet featured twice, you know. There was a long list of girls' names, each one. You can't erase them, so you had to keep adding, you know. You'd think the fellow would get the message, but, but he did not. So, of course, if you found a body part with a let's say, all those women in the same order, that might, in fact, be... So we're talking about something that is uniquely identifying. Now, the question is, what level of statistic certainty would we need in Judaism? And Talmud doesn't give a statistic. It talks about very unique identifying features, but it does not give a figure. In fact, halakhically, we're quite skeptical of statistics in many ways. And so here, the Talmud does not give us a figure. But since the 16th century, approximately, our great rabbis have tended to commit themselves to some sort of a statistic in order to give us some sense of how unique the feature has to be. And today what's accepted is probably something around one in a thousand. So a well-accepted sort of a standard. So if I find an object or indeed a body and we can be confident that it's less likely than one in a thousand that we're making a mistake, then in fact that might be good enough. Now DNA is one in 10 million. So we're talking about something that is way better than the best halachic standard. But on the other hand, you can't see it. It's a chemical test. It's done in a lab. There's room for error. You know, is that good enough? So that's our question. Let me tell you the state of the art halachically today, and this is a moving target. It could be developing as we speak, and it could be that rabbis in a couple of years might, might you know, give more credence to the DNA. But today, this, the, the, the basic approach has been that if we have positive DNA identification, plus what we call raglaim ledova, Raglaim Devar means what in English you'd call basic corroborating evidence. Means a background that makes the situation likely. Corroborated by DNA, we would in fact accept the DNA. I'll give you the test case that is the most classic and famous. And that was during the 9-11 attacks in New York. You know probably that almost no bodies were found. But there was a body part that was found, I think it was an arm and a shoulder, that was thought to belong to a Jewish man from New York. They took DNA from the body specimen and it perfectly matched hair in his hairbrush at home in his apartment in New York. In addition, he happened to be speaking to his wife on the phone when the building was attacked. He said to her, something's happening, we don't know what it is, and then the phone went silent, he was never seen again. She was allowed to remarry. Because the rabbis reasoned that, first of all, DNA, very, very precise match, in addition to corroborating evidence, we know he was in the building speaking to his wife. That is a classic situation where, in fact, we are using DNA and so Anyone who claims that the halakha is not sensitive to changes and modernity, of course, that's entirely incorrect. Here is a classic example of something in the modern technological world, which is being more and more accepted into the halakha realm. Here's another example. 
not that long ago, a young man, young Jewish man, wanted to marry a girl who would be forbidden for a Kohen to marry. Certain relationships are more stringent. When it comes to Kohanim, this is not the time to go into the reasons. Now, this young man's father is a Kohen. Now, ordinarily, that would mean he's a Kohen. But there was a confused adoption story in the family, and it wasn't 100% clear if indeed he was the son of the father. No one could establish the facts clearly. Rav Asher Weiss, one of the recognized halachic authorities in Israel today, allowed them to take DNA from the son and the father, putative father, to see whether, in fact, paternity checks out. And, lo and behold, he turned out not to be his father at all, which we could say with virtual certainty from the DNA, and so Rabbi Weiss allowed this young man to marry the girl. Why? DNA evidence plus corroborating evidence. There was already a confused story about a possible adoption in the family, and so another example where not a life and death matter, but a marriage matter was settled in terms of DNA. So, in summary, we're talking about identifying people using DNA, as I say, that's coming more and more into halachic use as well. So that is the story of using DNA to identify people. And in the Jewish legal system, of course, there are very few places in the world today where we have legal jurisdiction. It's true that in Israel today, marriage law is adjudicated on the base of, of halachic principles, and therefore this might have application, as I said. Certainly we would have the authority to decide on burials and moving bodies and so forth and so on. Anything requiring police powers, of course, we wouldn't have except in Israel where the secular state accepts halachic rulings, such as in marriage law and so forth and so on. We also have a question of who is a Jew. And in Israel today, although it's a vexed and highly debated issue, if we could find a Jewish gene, then we may have some halachic authority that we could bring to rest on such determination. And maybe in our next session, I'll talk a bit about the new Jewish gene that has just been discovered. But I would say what we've discussed in this session has been the very interesting legal question of identifying bodies, body parts, paternity, and this, of course, is coming more into use. I would say, just our listeners shouldn't make a mistake, it does not have absolute power, and therefore we would certainly not use DNA with no reason to do so to invalidate a marriage or to invalidate paternity or decide on inheritance. We might use it as corroborating evidence, as I said before, or on the basis of other corroborating evidence in circumstances where that would be appropriate halakhically, but we are not yet at the point of deciding who is Jewish or who is a Kohen absolutely on the basis of these laws. Could there come a time when DNA is sufficient to establish full identity with no other evidence in the background? I think it's conceivable, but at the present time there are limits, I would say wise and practical and common sense limits to where we use these laws. Maybe in our next session we'll take it further and talk about identifying Kohanim Jews and even, shall I say, human beings. There's been an attempt to see how many common ancestors all human beings, how many mothers do we all have? You know, fascinating thing. And next time we meet, perhaps we'll talk about that. Fantastic. That does sound fascinating. I'm sure I'm not the only one waiting to hear about the Jewish gene. Thank you very much, Robert Hertz. Looking forward to next week. Thank you. 